Hey guys, thanks for watching online. We are honored that you chose to give us this time. We have people watching from all over the world. If you're in the Middle Tennessee area, please come and be a part of one of our local campuses because your experience with church shouldn't end online. It should just begin there or be a supplement to being involved in a local community. So come uh, be a part of one of our local campuses. And, and if you live outside of our area, please contact us. You can contact us through Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, email us. Uh, we will be glad to do some research where you live and find a good healthy church to recommend to you to plug into because we want you to be involved in a community. So we hope these messages bless you. Uh, let us know if we can help you in any way. Uh, God bless you again. Thanks for watching and I look forward to seeing you really soon. Let's dive in. We're going through the book of John. And it's a great book. I love it. We call it Jesus because we just want to focus on Jesus, right? We talk a lot about sending. We talk a lot about missions. We talk a lot about the nations, and we do. We love them because Jesus loves them. We're sending church because that's what Jesus established the church to do. But that's not primary for us. Jesus is primary. That's why we're here. That's what we're about. That's why we call this series Jesus. Today, as we uh, continue our journey through John, we're going uh, to, to a wedding, Okay, we're going to go to a wedding. Now, all the guys in here just went, oh, great, right? I mean, really, when it comes down to it, uh, usually women really love going to weddings and men really don't, right? Uh, I mean, even the guy that's da that even the guy getting married looks a little, uh, you know, a little confused. I mean, if you go to weddings, if this is not true, think about it. Most brides are always very stunning and most dudes, grooms are just stunned, right? And so, uh, but... And here's the thing, God, think about this, guys. This is a great thing. God, uh, we, we're thankful, thankfully, God invented streaming so that you can still go to the wedding but watch the game while your wife watches the wedding, right? And you're, you're there. And so, but back in Jesus' day, uh, guys really loved to go to weddings. I mean, it wasn't like today. It wasn't an hour-long ceremony. It was a week-long party, right? And that's what we're going to see today as we go to John chapter 2. We're out of one. So we're going to John chapter 2, and we're going to begin to see some really incredible stories of Jesus' miracles and, his, and, and, and some things Jesus did, and we're going to learn a lot from these. And today we're going to learn uh, from his very first miracle. He goes to a wedding, and the story that we're going to look at today is Jesus going to a wedding, performing his very first miracle, coming out of the gate in his public ministry, and his very first miracle was turning water into wine. And, and, and we're not talking, you know, we're talking good wine, 150 to 180 gallons of wine. Now, that's a, a great miracle, right? And, and, and here's what we're going to do coming out of the gate. Obviously, we're going to talk a little bit about a theology of alcohol. And we're going to do that because you can't talk about Jesus turning water into wine without talking about the fact that Jesus turned water into wine, right? And I mean, we can talk about all the lessons and that just sort of lays there and it's not good. And so we're going to talk about theology of alcohol because why? Because number one, we're committed to the Bible. We're going to preach the Bible always. We're going to preach never more than what the Bible says, never less than what the Bible says. And the church in America has got, to be quite honest with you, churches in America have, have really been confused on the theology of alcohol and the confusion doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from outside cultural influence such as the prohibition and things like that. So we're going to look at this. The church is outside of America. If you're watching from outside of America, because we have people watching from practically every country, or not every country, but a lot of countries, I'm sorry, uh, 
It's not an issue. The, the confusion is not there, uh, uh, except in some churches that I go to outside that have been started by an American missionary, and they transplanted that right there. And, and so we're going to talk a little bit today because we want you to be healthy in your view. We want you to understand the biblical view because uh, I, I didn't grow up with a healthy biblical view of alcohol, and so that leads to some bad stuff. And so we're going to talk about that. So to, let, let, me, let me give you basically the three views that the American church has when it comes to alcohol. Uh, and three basic views, we can sum them up into three different categories. One is prohibitionist. Prohibitionists believe uh, that alcohol is sin. Any kind of alcohol, any usage of alcohol is sin. Alcohol is sinful. Uh, no Christian would drink alcohol because alcohol is sinful. G they believe, prohibitionists believe Jesus didn't drink alcohol. The, the, the wine in the Bible is not wine. It is, it, it is grape juice. Yeah, like, like people got drunk on Welch's. Boy, that, that'd give you a good drunk right there, right? And so, uh, you know, the Bible says don't get drunk on Welch's, on grape juice. And so uh, Jesus was called a drunkard because he's drinking grape juice, I guess. And so what people do with that is they don't know how to deal with the fact in their mind, even pastors in their mind believe, well, I don't know how to deal with this because the Bible doesn't say anything that alcohol is negative, but I don't know how to deal with it. So let's just eisegete. Let's read in there. That really wasn't alcohol. We know it wasn't because Jesus drank and alcohol and he drank wine. And so it couldn't have been wine, but uh, that's not what the Bible says. All right. And so uh, I would be very careful. We're going to see today, Jesus drank wine and Jesus turned water into 150 to 180 gallons, a lot of wine. And so I'd be very careful. We got to play out now. If we say it's sinful, then we were, we're saying Jesus committed sin because Jesus drank wine. We know Jesus didn't commit sin. So therefore drinking wine wasn't sinful. Right. And so, and, and is not. And so, so that's a prohibitionist view. It's, it's legalistic and it's perversion of scripture. We like to say the liberals pervert scripture by not taking the Bible and sort of writing it out and saying, well, you know, when it comes to sex or when it comes to a lot of things, we say the liberals pervert it, but uh, legalists also pervert the scripture by, by taking it out and, and, not, and, and, and going further than it does. So we can't pervert the scripture. So prohibitionist is a bad view. A lot of churches sort of teeter on that view. That's where they sort of are, but it's hard for them to say it because it's not biblical. So the next view is abstentionist. Now, abstentionists uh, are people who, who believe that uh, alcohol is not a sin. It's not a sin, and wine's not a sin. It's not a sin. But uh, real Christians shouldn't drink alcohol because of the social evils that it has led to. People abuse alcohol, and because people abuse alcohol, we shouldn't do it. Well, again, that's so inconsistent. The church I grew up in teetered between both of those, okay? And that's what I was taught all my life. Never from a biblical perspective, but I was taught those two things all of my life. Really, it's evil. We shouldn't do it. You ask somebody, well, where does it say in the Bible? Well, it really, I mean, it's evil. We shouldn't do it. Where does it say in the Bible? It's evil. We shouldn't do it. Okay, and that was that was the uh, uh, that's the, that, that's a line of questioning, and so uh, so there's abstentionists now. Abstentionists, as I said, they don't believe it's evil, uh, but we shouldn't do it because it leads to abuse. Now play that out. Let's be consistent because what we want to do for our kids, what we want to do for us is we want our kids to grow up. I want my kids to grow up with a healthy view of everything, a biblical, not a cultural, but a biblical view of everything, including alcohol. I want my kids to grow up consistent. So if it's consistent, then if we don't drink alcohol because people abuse it then what do we do with people who, what, what do we do because people abuse, men abuse women, right? That's what Luther said. Luther said, do we think that abuse is eliminated when we eliminate the thing that's abused? In other words, uh, people abuse wine, uh, then, you know, eliminate wine, 
right? People abuse women, do we eliminate women, <laughs> right? Uh, so people worship the stars, do we pluck them out of the sky? That's what, that's what Luther said. I would say, well, I mean, uh, I know people, you know people that abuse food, let's just not eat. I know people that abuse the TV. Any of you that would say, okay, well, we shouldn't drink wine because people abuse it, I want you to go home, get rid of your TV because people abuse TV by watching it 14, 20 hours. You gotta be consistent, right? People abuse TV. Matter of fact, is there anything that God created that men don't abuse for sin? Nothing. Then you'd have to do away with everything. The Bible, people abuse the Bible, right? Do we not read the Bible? Well, it might cause somebody to stumble, okay? It might, so we couldn't do it because it might cause somebody to stumble. Well, again, uh, we're not consistent. We only apply that when it comes to wine or alcohol because if we did, we wouldn't eat in restaurants because somebody might come in at a restaurant that abuses food and say, oh, they're eating. God, it's going to cause me to eat. So we couldn't eat. You know, again, we couldn't do any of those things. Let me help you to understand when it talks about making someone stumble in the Bible, it's not talking about, well, I do it and someone sees me and they stumble. That's on that, bro that's on that person, right? We couldn't do anything in that realm. What that means is I'm chiding people to do it. Let's say someone's on the keto diet, right? I need to be on the keto diet. I need to be on some diet. But let's say someone's on a diet. You pick a diet and, man, and I say, man, I'm having a good piece of cake. You know, I mean, just buttercream icing or some kind of peanut butter pie, like smack your mama that wheel right there, peanut butter pie. And I'm having peanut butter pie, and, I, and somebody's like saying, uh, man, I, I, man, you're going to eat a piece of pie. No, I'm on a, I'm on a diet, and I'm going, mm-mm-mm-mm, you're missing it. I get that, and I sort of rub it on their nose, and, you know, I'm trying to chide them into doing That's causing someone to stumble. That's the same thing with alcohol. It's not just doing it in front of them, right? Did people abuse alcohol in Jesus' day? Yes. Did Jesus drink in public? Yes. Did he say, well, I can't because somebody might see me and stumble? No, okay? So you've got prohibitionists. You've got absten abstentionists. These are the two predominant views the majority of the views of churches in, in the United States, and I will tell you that it's led to some very unhealthy, uh, unhealthy views and unhealthy practices. It's led to people who are Christians that drink alcohol that go, I don't know if I, I mean, it's just, I, I'm weird. You see, you know, it's led to what happens is in my home church, this is the way, you know, you grow up in, in where I come from, and it's teetering between these two views, and so everybody in the church was taught it's evil. So all that meant was, it didn't mean people didn't drink, they did, they just didn't speak each other in the liquor store, right? And so they, they turned their head or made sure somebody else went with them. And so it's, it's just very unhealthy. So what's the third view? The third view is moderation. Moderation is that alcohol is not sin. It's not a sin to drink alcohol. It's a sin to get drunk. Okay. It's a sin to get drunk, right? It's a sin to get drunk. And that's very clear in the Bible. It's not a sin to drink. Jesus drank. Jesus never got drunk. It's a sin to get drunk. Now, just because you can doesn't mean you should, though, okay? Now, I want to I help you to understand that. The Bible doesn't command we drink. It doesn't command we don't drink. It commands we don't get drunk. It doesn't command we don't drink, but it commands we don't get drunk, but it doesn't command we do drink. So just because you can doesn't mean you should. And here, here's the, what I want to help you to understand about that. Uh, it's the difference between universal sins and particular sin. Now, I want to explain that, and I want you to listen very carefully because I don't want you to confuse it with relativism because that's not what I'm talking about. Relativism says just because something's right for you doesn't mean it's right for me because it's wrong for you doesn't mean it's wrong for me. That's not biblical. God is the standard of what's right and wrong, right? So uh, universal sins are sins that are sin no matter what. They are sin because they're biblical. God says don't lie. You ever lie, that's a sin. God says don't get drunk. You get drunk, that's a sin, right? God says don't steal. You steal, that's sin. He says not have sex before marriage. He says not have sex after, 
uh, marriage with anyone but your husband or wife outside of marriage. You do, that's a sin. It's a universal biblical sin, okay? Now, particular sins, it's not relative, but particular sins are sin that might be a sin for you because it's a conscience issue. When I grew up, I was taught in a prohibitionist, abstentionist view of alcohol, so the culture that I grew up in warped my conscience. It molded my conscience, Right? And I, I don't want my conscience. And then what happened was I literally went to seminary and I was challenged to like study the Bible. And when I started studying the Bible, I started, you know, saying, oh, wait a minute. I mean, this is not what I've been taught all my life. So do I go with what I've been taught all my life, culture, or do I go with the Bible? Obviously, I'm going with the Bible because we want the Bible to shape and mold your conscience. But if you have a conscience issue because that's what you've been taught, then you shouldn't do it. The Bible says that's sin if you violate your conscience, right? So that's called a particular sin, right? In other words, it's not biblical, but for you it's wrong, then don't do it. If, if, if you have a conviction about rated R movies, some Christian I know says, man, I couldn't go to a rated R movie. I've got a conviction about that. Other Christians say, I'm not going to go to a rated R movie. It's about glorifying sex and all that. But just because it's rated R, I don't have a conviction about that. If you do, then don't go. For you, that hurts your faith, right? Because for you, it's wrong. So that's universal and particular. And, 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 and you know, uh, so moderation the, the three views and then moderation is uh, it's not wrong to drink alcohol, but it's wrong to get drunk. Now, here's, here's what in the Bible, when we see the Bible, wine is huge in the Bible. Wine is huge. Matter of fact, wine and weddings are symbols of the messianic kingdom. They're symbols of the messianic kingdom. We'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. They're symbols of the messianic kingdom. So they're associated with blessing and with joy and with celebration. The, so much so that the rabbi says there is no rejoicing save for wine. Without wine, there is no rejoicing. So uh, drinking of wine was great. Drinking, uh, uh, getting drunk, no, sinful, okay, to the Jews. Did you realize that when the Puritans, and we know the Puritans is very restricted, very reserved, right? When the Puritans landed at Plymouth Rock, they built the building, their very first building they built. It wasn't a hospital. It wasn't even a church. Their very first building was a brewery. Did you know that? And so all through history, this view of alcohol has been way different than in the last, you know, 70, 80, 100 years in America. Why is that? It's because of prohibition and the, uh, and the cultural leanings of that. It's never been about Bible. You go to other countries, all through the history of that, it, it's never been that. And so, so, but here's the thing. I don't care what Luther said about that, really. I do care about what Luther said. I care about what's pure. Uh, but it doesn't matter what Luther said. It doesn't matter what the Puritans did. The thing that really matters on any issue, it doesn't matter what some theologian or really what a preacher or what I say, what matters is what the Bible says, right? So what does the Bible say about this? I could give you verse after verse after verse after verse, but for your sake, for our sake, for time's sake, for the start of football's sake, we're gonna give you two. <laughs> okay? Psalm 104 Verses 14 and 15 say this. You cause, obviously God, cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for, the plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. If you're a legalist, you know, I mean, we got people standing by with, uh, if you come from a legalist background, we got people standing by with a defib machine back in the back, okay? But, because the Bible says, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. So uh, it's associated with blessing. 
right? He, he creates this to bless you. Uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 9 and 10 uh, say this, uh, talking about the blessing of obedience. Honor the Lord with, the we- with your wealth and with your first fruits. They're agrarian, remember that, which means their wealth is in crops and livestock. So honor the Lord with your wealth, your first fruits. Talking about tithing. The first fruits are the first that you get. Talking about tithing. We know that is a tenth in the Bible. So honor the Lord with your wealth and your first fruits of all your produce. What will happen when you're obedient and your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine? So uh, in the Bible, the, the, the connotation with wine is always positive and blessing. As a matter of fact, God, the Old Testament says wine is associated with God's blessing. He curses the Israelites by withdrawing their wine. Do you realize that? So, uh, so the only time Bible, the, uh, it's talked about negatively in the Bible is the prohibition of getting drunk. Right? So let me tell you how we work this out. I wanted to go into this because I want you to have a healthy view of everything. Sex, alcohol, money, life, right? Not a religious view because religion sucks the life out of you, right? And forever, my, my view of alcohol was religious. Do, don't do that. Why? I don't know. It's just what they say to not do. Why, why, where does it come back to biblically? What, what kind of life is in it? It's not about life. It's just about don't do it, right? That's religion. And I don't want that to be shaped, your life your, 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 to be shaped. So, so our view here is moderation. Why? Because that's what the Bible says. We're not going to do anything except what the Bible says. We're going to do what the Bible says. We're going to preach what the Bible says. So moderation. So uh, that means that uh, drinking wine for us is not wrong. Drinking alcohol for us is not wrong. Getting drunk is. If you get drunk, if I see you drunk, if, if, if someone sees you drunk, that's a sin. If we see you committing other sin, we're going to, just like any other sin, we're going to say, hey, bro, what's going on? Whoa, that's a sin. Did you realize that? Right? That's a sin. Right? So, so, so that's, now if you're 21, if you're not 21, it's a sin. I need you to understand that. If you're under 21, if you're 18, I'm out of school. Man, I'm a man. I'm 18. I can go fight for my country at 18, but you can't drink wine. Why? Because the government says not to. And that's a government issue. And you say, well, that's a government. But the Bible, I don't know. Here's what the government says, uh, the Bible says in Romans 13. Obey your governing authorities. Obey your governing authorities. So the governing authorities have established this for us. And, Br- and Belgium is 16, Okay. So that's under a different rule. A 17 year old that drinks wine in Brussels, and they do, uh, a 17 year old that drinks wine in Brussels, it's not a sin issue because their government allows it, our government doesn't. And we submit to our governing authorities or we're in sin, right? So if you're not 21, if you're 20, it's, in, it's a sin to drink alcohol because that's what your governing authorities say, okay? Now, if you have a problem with it, if you have abused it, and many of you have, and what I want you to understand is uh, in all this, some of you have been hurt by people who have abused alcohol. Some of you have been, your daddy abused alcohol and you're wounded by that. Your husband maybe abused alcohol and you're wounded, somebody in your family. And, and man, that is horrible. But that doesn't mean you eliminate it because your daddy abused it because your daddy, uh, uh, daddies abuse a lot of things. Remember, go back to that, right? But if you have been one who has abused it in the past, you shouldn't if you can't control it. And I want to make sure I'm not big on, well, you, you, you did that because your daddy was an alcoholic and you got the gene. No, you take responsibility. You did it because you sinned and you didn't control yourself. Don't blame it on your daddy. 
okay? So uh, don't blame that on your daddy. That's on your responsibility. And when you abuse it, just like people abuse a lot of things, you need to back away and say, I'm not doing it. That's, that's wise. That's smart. That's, that's the, the thing you should do, right? So, so now, also, if you don't, then great. There's no issue there. The Bible doesn't command us to. But what the Bible says, if you don't, great. But then don't push judgment on someone when you see them uh, drinking a glass of wine or, 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 or buying a bottle of wine at Publix. You know, you see somebody buying a bottle of wine, can't do that. That's called unrighteous judgment because you're judging people against something of your opinion, not the Bible. You never violate your conscience, but you can't bind other people with your conscience when it's not a biblical uh, uh, issue, okay? Now, with all that being said, and I hope that's not confusing and everything, but you have to deal with that because in times past, you hear a sermon on this, it's never dealt with. Jesus drinks wine. Jesus turns water into wine, and man, it's like, wow, what do you do with that? It just sort of lays there. With that being said, now let's get into the real sermon. That was all free, okay? So uh, let's get into the real sermon, and uh, our bottom line today is Jesus transforms. Jesus transforms, okay? And that's what you're going to see today. And so let's go John chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. John chapter 2, 1 through 5. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus, this being Mary, said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does that have to do with me? And my hour has not yet come. His mother said to his servants, do whatever he tells you to do. Now, Jesus' mom, along with Jesus uh, and his disciples, because of Jesus, were invited to a wedding in Cana. Cana is about eight miles north of Nazareth, which was Jesus' hometown. When I go to Israel, typically, uh, if we have the time, we go to Cana. And you know what's in Cana? Cana's there because it's where Jesus performed his first miracle. It's a huge biblical uh, site. What's there today? A huge wine store, right? Because they, 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 they sort of capitalize off of the, the Jesus' first miracle still today. And so, so uh, but it was in Cana. It was eight miles north of Nazareth, and uh, they're invited to this wedding, and this is pretty cool. I want you to put this in perspective. God opens the Bible with a wedding. God opened the Bible with a wedding. He, he performed the very first wedding ceremony in the Garden of Eden when he created Eve, brought her to Adam, and married him. God closes the Bible with a wedding, right? It's called the Marriage Supper of the Lamb. It's Revelation 19. It's the Marriage Supper of the Lamb where uh, it's a huge party for all the redeemed. If you're a Christian, because I'm a Christian, when Jesus returns, you and I are going to celebrate a huge party. Jesus will be there. Moses will be there. The marriage supper of the lamb. He opens with a wedding. He concludes with a wedding. It's only fitting that his very first miracle takes place at a wedding, which I think is very symbolic of the fact that this is not really about Jesus transforming. It, it is a real story. It's a historical story. But it's about the fact that he will transform your life, not just transform water into wine, but he will transform your life. He, Jesus, transforms. And it's also about the fact that Jesus is the, bride, that Jesus is the bridegroom. The church is the bride. That's what this whole story is, is, is really co communicating at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. Now, there were three stages to a Jewish wedding. Let me give you some, some background on a Jewish wedding. There are three stages to a Jewish wedding. 
Stage one was the betrothal period. Uh, we get engaged today. Uh, this was sort of like our engagement and the fact that when you get engaged, hopefully she says yes, you put the ring on her finger, she's set aside for you, exclusively for you, but how it's supposed to work, you don't live together, you don't sleep together, you don't consummate, you know, that's how it's supposed to work, biblically, how it should work, right? That was hap- happened in a betrothal, and so it was sort of like that, but it was unlike it in the fact that you could only get out of a betrothal with a divorce. If you remember Mary, when she's pregnant with Jesus, Joseph finds out, he knows we haven't consummated because, you know, that's not what we're supposed to do. We haven't consummated. We haven't had sex. She's pregnant. Two plus two equals sex, right, in that, in that context. So she's had sex. Not with me. I'm divorcing her. And, and, and Gabriel showed up and said, no, dude, don't divorce her. This is from God. And, and, he, and he, he stayed with her, adopted, basically adopted Jesus as his uh, adopted earthly father. Incredible story. But the point is, a betrothal uh, was a year long, and uh, uh, that was the first stage of marriage. It could only be broken by divorce. And then after a year, what would happen was the groom, his groomsmen would go to the bride's house, pick her up. They would process back to their house that they were going to live in. All right. Now this was a huge uh, Thanksgiving Day parade type situation. Dancing, singing, loud music, celebrating. I mean, man, torches, the whole works because the town's involved, the village is involved. It's a great thing. When they got to the house they lived in, there was a, some kind of a ceremony. That was stage two, the procession, the ceremony. Stage three of the Jewish wedding was a week-long party, okay? They partied. Now, think about it. This was done because of the honor of weddings and what weddings and marriage symbolizes in the Bible because they wanted to make a huge deal out of it, which is wonderful, right? But it was also very practical because think about it. When families didn't live close, even eight miles apart, it took a long time to get there, but further out. It took hours, days to go a few miles, and so they use weddings as an opportunity to say, man, let's celebrate for a while, family reunion type thing, uh, all that kind of stuff. And so they would have a week-long party. And in that party, the groom and his family was to provide food and alcohol for the entire week, right? I mean, wow. Man, I'm sort of glad we've changed that tradition. I've got three boys, right? You know, I thought I was going to get away from the girl thing. Now I've got two girls, right? And so so they would provide the wedding, the wine and, and the food for the week-long celebration. At this particular wedding, they ran out of wine. We don't know why. There might have been a lot of wedding crashers. <laughs> People crashing those weddings, free food, free wine, right? People crashing those weddings. Might have been a lot of wedding crashers. Might have been poor. It doesn't tell us why, but what it tells us is they ran out of wine, which was a huge social disgrace, a huge social shame. They're getting married. The groom is supposed to provide for his wife. At the very outset, there's question now, can he provide for her? They're out of wine. Now they're running out of wine. No one knows it except Mary, a few of the servants, Jesus' mama. It must have been somebody very important to Jesus' family, maybe a relative even, because Mary seems to be in charge of the, the, the food and wine, right? She seems to be in charge of, of, of hostessing or, or, or the food and wine, the catering, whatever. And, and so she comes to Jesus and said, Jesus, they're out of wine. You've got to do something. You've got to do something. And he says, woman, what does that have to do with me? Now, uh, when, you, when you look at that, you're thinking, okay, woman, man, I, that, that sounds pretty harsh, right? I mean, that sounds pretty harsh. No boy, in the, no boy in the South, anyway, if you're watching from a different country, we live in the South, this is right outside of Nashville, there ain't no Southern boy ever going to call his mama woman, okay? 
I mean, that's just not going to happen. We say yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am in the South, right? I mean, that's our cultural. You better. I hope we teach our kids to say yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am. And that might not make sense outside, but to us, it's polite, it's respectful, it's, it's honorable. And we say yes, ma'am, no, ma'am. We don't say woman to our mama. If I've got three boys, any of my boys ever called Amy woman, it better be preceded by she's a beautiful woman. <laughs> she's a great woman. Or they're soon going to find out that she's the baddest woman, right? And so, so you don't call your mama woman. So why did Jesus call his mama woman? It's disrespectful today, but why, so why did Jesus respond that way? Well, first off, uh, he didn't live in, in, in the southern United States, right? He, he didn't live now. He lived in uh, uh, the Middle East 2,000 years ago. Culture's a little different. But let me tell you two biblical, let me take you to two biblical places uh, and show you why this wasn't disrespectful. One, Genesis, in the opening pages of the Bible, God creates Eve. He brought her to Adam. What he said, she shall be called what? Woman, for she was taken out of man. So this was a very honorable, this was, this was a, an endearing term. It's what God called Eve. It was an endearing term, right? Secondly, let me give you a deeper dig. In Genesis 3, chapter 14, it's called the Proto-Evangelion, which is the first gospel. After the fall, Adam and Eve fell. Uh, then God comes. He brings cursing on Adam and Eve, the serpent. And if you remember, you can look at it in Genesis 3, 14. He curses the serpent, and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. I will put enmity between you and the woman her, uh, and her offspring. You will crush you will, you will wound his heel, he will crush your head, he will destroy you. So basically, I think here what Jesus is doing and when he talks to Mary, very possibly, the Bible doesn't say this, so I'm, I'm sharing something with you that I think is very possible, that Jesus uh, is reminding Mary of who he is and his mission, his identity and his mission. You have the honor of being the woman. You have the honor of being the woman. I'm kicking off my ministry. You have the honor of being the woman. And so, so Jesus wasn't being disrespectful. Uh, you know, Jesus wasn't being disrespectful. He wasn't being callous and calling his mother woman. It was a term of endearment. Now, he did, now he moves on and he is making sure she understands something that the relationship's going to be different. Because he says, what is that to me? Literally translated as what to me and you. In the Bible, that was a very polite way of distancing yourself from someone. So what Jesus is doing is he's redefining the relationship. He's redefining the relationship. It's almost like Jesus, Mary's mom comes, Mary, his mom comes to him and says, Jesus, I want you to do something. And Jesus is almost like, mom, would you please quit telling me to clean my room? I own the house now, okay? I mean, mom, quit telling me what to do in front of my guys. I am God. Do you not remember that? You know, I mean, so he's redefining the relationship. He's saying from now on our relationship will be different. Listen, guys, a lot of guys probably need to follow this example because it's hard for moms to cut the apron strings, right? I mean, if you're married, your mom's still, you know, the main woman in your life, there's a problem. You need to redefine that thing, right? And so, so uh, uh, some of you guys might need to follow this. Mom's always mom. Mom always loves. You need to always listen to mama, but uh, you might need to redefine. And what he's doing here is, he, he, here's what's happening. As he's redefining this, this relationship, just remember, John the Baptist, just a few days ago, has baptized Jesus and announced that he is the Messiah, the Lamb of God. 
Okay, he, it's, the cat's out of the bag now. Mary, for all these years, for 30 years, Mary has been pondering all these things in her heart, is what the scripture said. She, she knew that uh, this child was from God. She was a virgin, conceived as a virgin. Uh, Gabriel told her who Jesus would be. She, but, I mean, did she realize, I mean, the extent of that? Was she thinking political? Still, I mean, we really don't know, but she's pondering all these things in her heart. But what she knows now is, just a few days ago, it was announced to the world, right? I mean, public service announcement, uh, you know, uh, went across the television channels, uh, you know, a, uh, you know, a, I mean, it went out to, it was push notification, went out to all the people that said, he's the Messiah, the Lamb of God. So now it's public. And so G, Mary's probably going, man, I want my boy to show who he is, what he can do. You know, I mean, I understand that as a parent, don't you? That's my boy right there. And she's probably knowing it's out of the bag now. I want Jesus to show who he is and what he can do. Either way, she's presuming on him as God. She's presuming on him. What does that mean? That means that she's trying to get him to do what she wants him to do. She's trying to get him to do what she wants him to do. She's presuming upon him uh, uh, and trying to get him to do what she wants him to do. And Jesus very politely says, Mom, I'm not just your son. I'm the son. I'm not just your son. I'm the son. From now on, our relationship is going to be different. I'm not going to do anything out of the, out, under your influence. By the way, from now on in the Bible, when you see Jesus and his mama, he always distances himself from her. He's not being callous. What he's doing is he's reminding her, you, me, all of us, that we don't approach him, even Mary as his mama, we don't approach him, we approach him as the son of God. We approach him as the savior, as the Messiah, as God. And it means that he's not going to bend and, and be manipulated and be bent into doing anything by human influence. He is going to stick to the will of the father and not be bent by the will of man, Right? He's basically saying, listen, mom, I've got a cross-shaped life. My life's about one thing. I was born to die. I'm dying on a cross, and nothing's going to distract me from my mission. Incredible, incredible point of emphasis for you right there. Because so many Christians get distracted by even good things, but they miss the great things. Jesus said, I'm not being distracted. That's what this is all about. I'm not being distracted. He had a cross-shaped life. I think Mary got the point. She told the service, do whatever he tells you to do. That's another point of emphasis. The mother of Jesus said, just do what he tells you to do. I, I, that probably could be the greatest sermon ever preached. Uh, that could be the greatest thing. Just do what he says to do. Just do it, right? Just do what he said. What did Jesus say to do? Just do it. What did Jesus say to do about sex? Okay, then just do it. What did Jesus say to do about alcohol? Just do it. What did Jesus say to do about your money? Just do it. You see, we get messed when we say, oh, Jesus said this, but I, don't, I think I could do this and be happier. I think I know better and train wreck your life. He said this about sex. He said this about money. He said this about alcohol. He said this about relationships. He said this about marriage. But I think I know better. Or, man, it's 2017. I, I don't know. And oh, the pressure. And I, Just do what he said to do and see what happens in your life. That's probably the greatest thing you could ever learn, the greatest thing you could ever do. Just do what he says to do. Just do it, right? Let's go on and finish it out, verses 6 to 11. He said, now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. 
when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew where it came from, right? Uh, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, notice John calls them signs, we'll talk about that. Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Wow, now there were six stone water jars there used for the Jewish ritual of purification. Let me tell you what happened in the Old Testament. It outlines some uh, purification, uh, some ritual washings. And those were symbolic to remind the people of Israel that they were unclean from sin and needed to be cleansed. Just like our baptism, uh, it didn't cleanse them from sin, it was a symbol of the cleansing they needed that pointed to the Messiah is the only thing that will cleanse you. When we baptize someone, we uh, baptize them. The water does nothing as far as salvation. It does nothing as far as true cleansing. It is a pure symbol that they have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. They've been cleansed by his sacrifice, okay? So in the Old Testament, they were these ritual purifications, these washings. Now, by the time the Pharisees added, at this point it was symbolic, and, and it was cool, but then the Pharisees come along and they begin to add, add all these washings until it become a mundane, religious, lifeless, religious practice, right? And at a Jewish wedding, there would have been uh, uh, many washings because of everything the Pharisees had added. And so there was a lot of water on hand. In this case, there was 150 to 180 gallons of water that continually throughout the week, the servants would have just went down and they wouldn't have taken the stone jar because can you imagine a stone jar that would hold 20 to 30 gallons and then the 20 or 30 gallons in it. They didn't take that down to the well. They would take a smaller vessel, come back uh, continually, right? And so these, these stone vessels are there and Jesus tells the servants after his mama, uh, uh, you know, and he had told his mama, hey, hey, listen, don't, don't be trying to control my ministry. You know, this is what my, this is what my life's about. Jesus said, fill up the, 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 the ceremonial jars to the brim. Doesn't say they were empty. Uh, we, we can imagine that, that they were, some of them were empty, some of them were half full, but he said, fill them up. Now, what you need to understand about ceremonial washing water is it was probably gray water. Gray water is water that you are not gonna drink because it might not be purified, but you can bathe or wash with it, you know? And so that's called gray water. And so um, brown water is, as the term suggests, is water that you don't drink or bathe with or anything. Gray water you, you bathe with or, or wash your hands with, but you wouldn't drink. So it's gray water probably, it's not been purified. Jesus said, fill it up. So they would have filled it up with ceremonial uh, uh, water. And Jesus said, uh, draw out some, take it to the master of the feast, the master of ceremony. Now you know that the guys who drew it out uh, probably said, ah, oh, is he crazy? This is ceremonial washing water. I mean, this is gray water. It's not even fit to drink. But Mary said, do what he said to do. She probably was important here because they just said, Mary said, do it, we're gonna do it. So they did it because Mary said to do it, all right? Now, they didn't know what was going on. Here's the point, okay? The point is that Jesus Jesus, this miracle was totally discreet. No one had a clue. Have you ever read it that way? No one had a clue what was going on except the disciples. It was totally discreet. Only Mary knew that they were out of wine. The rest of the guests had no clue they were even out of wine. 
right? So Jesus is honoring his mama's request at the same time remembering his hour has not yet come. He knows what people's going to do. And so, so he does this. He doesn't gather everybody together. He doesn't make a big, hey, 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 let me have your attention. Gather everybody at the wedding party together. Get the six stone jars up. Hey, I need a, a volunteer from the audience. Bring the volunteer up. Now taste this. Is it water? He didn't David blame the thing. Is it water? Yeah, it's water. Pour a little bit out. You know, pass it around. Is it water? Yeah, it's water. It's water. Okay, water, water. Abracadabra, hocus pocus. Woof. And then now pull some out. Wine? What is it? Is it water? No, it's wine. Oh my, ooh, ah. You know, that's not what he did. That's, it was totally discreet, right? No one knew, had a clue. No one even knew they were out of wine, okay? And so when you read this, you got to understand, no one even knew that they were out of wine. So, so not even the master of the feast. So the servants then take the, the, master, the, the wine to uh, or the master of the feast that they drew out of the, the ceremonial jars. Uh, the, I don't even think they knew what it was because they hadn't tasted it yet. They take it. Now, they might have thought, that, that's red. That ain't water. What in the world is that? Uh, and and uh, uh, it might have been white wine. I don't know. Probably red wine. No, it's great. And he, so he took it and, and he gave it to the master of the feast. The master of the feast tasted it. The master of the feast tasted it and went, Whoa, I mean, are you kidding me? He goes to the groom and says, man, you have completely got this thing reversed. You've, you've, you've been backwards. Most people serve the good wine first, right? I mean, at the beginning of the party, they serve the good wine. Then when people can't spell, they bring out the Boone's Farm, right? Or the old Milwaukee, the two buck chuck. I mean, that's what happens. But you've reversed this thing. Why did you reverse this thing? You know, and I mean, so Jesus begins his public ministry by giving away free drinks. Boy, that would start a, I mean, that'd start a movement, wouldn't it? Parking lot be a nightmare next week, right? And so, but now think about this. Jesus didn't just make wine. He made the best wine ever tasted. And he made 150 to 180 gallons of it. Now, what's the significance of that? Think about this. 150 to 180 gallons. When probably did they run out of wine? Do you think it was near the, 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 on the first of the week or at the end of the week? They probably ran out to the end. Okay, so Jesus makes 150 to 180 gallons of the best wine ever tasted. Okay, multiply that out today by the best wine that you could buy. Multiply that out today and see how much that is. He has just, it, which causes me to believe that, this, that these guests, that these bridegroom and bride might have been uh, maybe a little poor. And Jesus has now brought them an incredible gift because they get to keep all this left over. He has just blessed them abundantly because this is worth a lot of money. Jesus doesn't just bless folks. He blesses abundantly. He blesses abundantly. And so, uh, you know, if people would have known, I mean, Jesus would have been invited to everybody's wedding, wouldn't he? They didn't know. He didn't invite, hey, we got to invite Jesus. We got to invite Jesus from Nazareth. I mean, he doesn't just bring wine. He brings the best and there's a lot of it. Right, so bring him, and, and so, uh, but the sad thing is most churches wouldn't allow him to be their pastor today, isn't that silly? But uh, John calls this miracle, he calls it signs. Why does he call it a sign? What, 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 if you look in John's gospel, he calls them signs, and here, here's, the, here's the reason, because Jesus didn't do miracles to just display his power. You know, it wasn't like, you know, if I had that power and if you had that power, I mean, every now and then somebody would say something, we'd get a little bit mad and we'd say, I'll show you, right? Jesus wasn't showing them what he was doing. It was a sign, a sign 
pointed who he was. A sign pointed his identity. And that's what it said. This was the first of his signs. It wasn't just a display of power. It was a revelation of who he was. And it says his disciples believed. Remember, they had just followed him for a few days. And they're seeing this and they're going, oh, wow. I mean, this guy. There are more and more and more. Some of you are in that process right now. Some of you have been investigating. And some of you, the Holy Spirit's drawn. And you don't even really understand that and know what that means. But all of a sudden, you say, like, okay, I'll go to church with you. And I don't know. And you go, okay, that's pretty cool. I'm coming. And then, I mean, more and more and you're learning about Jesus and some of you are in that process just like these disciples right now and I don't even think they really understood and fully surrendered to him yet. And so after his resurrection, we see that all through scripture. Some of you are in that process right now just like these disciples. It's like, whoa, right? And by the way, I think this is how Jesus does most of his miracles today. He still does miracles, but just like at this wedding, we're totally unaware of it as all those people were totally unaware of them or we don't even recognize them as miracles, Right? And so, so what are some key things that we can learn from this passage? Man, there's about four sermons. I could read this passage and preach about four sermons. And so we can get through John. I'm not. And so you know the story. And what are the key things? Well, one, obviously, is that Jesus transforms. This is Jesus transforms. I want you to go away, and I don't want you to ever forget when you read this. Jesus transforms. He transformed water, just water, probably not even fit for drinking, into the greatest wine ever tasted. He, he, he transformed something that was, I mean, think about this. All these washings that were in the Old Testament that, wasn't, that, that didn't lead them to be, oh, drudgery. But then the Pharisees of religion come along and they add to it, like we talked about in the, for the beginning of this message, about religion and what religion does to what Jesus said to do. And it caused you to go, oh. You know, that's not Jesus, that's religion. And so the Pharisees added all these religious things, uh, all these washings, 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 washings. They even said Jesus didn't obey them because your disciples walked through the grain fields and you picked grain on the Sabbath. You didn't wash your hands. Jesus said it's not, what, it's not what's on the outside, it's what's on the inside, right? All these things, it's because they, all they had added, he never broke the law, but it was all they added, 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 added. And so it become like mundane, just like almost a sad time, a painful time. Jesus took something that was sad and turned it into something that made your heart. He took something that made your heart sad, turned it into something that made your heart glad. He took something that was a pain and turned it into a pleasure. You see, he can totally transform your life. He can totally transform. Some of you are just like those jars, those jars, those ceremonial wash jars. You're either empty or you're half full with the water of religion and that leaves it just like, ugh. And folks, he wants, you, you've not yet experienced the joy of Jesus. You've not yet experienced, you've experienced the drudgery of religion, but not the joy of Jesus. And he can transform your life. He can transform your life. Jesus transforms. Some of you have not been transformed yet by Jesus. And we want to talk to you about that. Come out to the next steps and we'll be glad to talk to you. What's another sermon on this? Another sermon on this I would preach about obedience. Just do what he says to do. Just do what he says to do. Because so many Christians don't do what he says to do. So many Christians think they know better. I know better when it comes to sex. I know better when it comes to money. I know better when it comes to relationships. I know better when it comes to marriage. You say, well, I really don't think that. When you don't do what he says to do, you think you know better, okay? Just call it what it is. When, you, when Jesus says do something and you do something else, you think you know better, okay? I do that. <laughs> That's the reason I'm saying it. I do that too because I don't always do what he says to do. And when I do, I get off the rail train wreck something. Promise you, because he is always right. He is always right. Just do what he says to do. Be obedient. Commit yourself to obedience. Here's another thing. Stay focused. Are you focused? Jesus said, Mom, you're not knocking me off course. 
Mom, you're not knocking me off course. Listen, Jesus said, I mean, this is, the, for a dude, I mean, one of the most major influences in his life would be his mama. And Jesus said, not even my mama is keeping me from doing the will of the Father. Okay? Now, some of us need to learn that because sometimes it is mom or dad that might say, do you think God's calling you there? You think, no, you, you know, and so uh, not even my mama is knocking me off course. Okay? But it might not be your mama. It might be just, the, you know, the guy on aisle, aisle three or the guy in the next cube. Why, you know, I, I mean, that, that distracts you. Don't be distracted. Live a cross-shaped life. This is who I'm about. This is what I'm about. Don't let anything distract you, right? I mean, there is sermon after sermon after sermon here, right? It's an amazing passage. And Jesus transforms. You know what we're going to do right now? Here's what we're going to do. Man, we want you to respond. We want, you to respond. we want some of you to respond today by saying, I want Jesus to transform me, come and talk to us. We want some of you who are Christians to say, you know what, I just need to do it. I just need to be obedient. I, don't, I need to be focused. I'm not. And we want you to think about that. And knocking you off focus uh, it has caused a lot of you to fall in some areas. And we want you to examine that and confess that. So here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to celebrate communion today. You know what communion is? Communion is like baptism. We did baptism a couple of weeks ago. Communion uh, is set aside by Jesus to cause us to remember his death and his resurrection so that it will help us stay focused. That's what it is. To, to re remember the transforming power of Jesus that transform our life. And then because of that, I need to be obedient and stay focused. And so we're gonna, we're gonna do that today, okay? Now, Jesus, the night before he was murdered, three years after this story, he's about to be murdered. He's in an upper room with his disciples. He's celebrating Passover and he takes a piece of bread, he breaks it. And he gives his disciples and said, this is my body broken. And they're like, what? I, I don't think they got it until after his resurrection, folks. I don't think they fully surrendered and submitted to it until after his resurrection. They said, what? They would know tomorrow. He, he, said this, he took wine and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. They're like, well, blood, this wine, what? They got it tomorrow. We get it today. He's talking about his body that was broken and his blood that was spilled to transform those who surrendered to him. And he said, as often as you do this, do it to remember me. And he was talking to me and you, not just his disciples. He said, I'm going to set this aside. I'm not going to tell you you have to do it every Sunday. Some churches do. That's great. Some churches don't like us. That's great too. He said, as often as you do it, not, he didn't say every Sunday, as often as you do it, remember me. So he set this aside so that we would remember he transforms. And if you're a Christian, to remember that he has transformed me, so I need to be obedient and focused. And remember how you haven't been obedient and confess that to examine yourself. Right? If you're not a believer, uh, it, this is to remind you of the gospel that Jesus was the son of God, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, uh, come back on the third day, and today wants to transform your life. Right, And so we celebrate communion, and we celebrate open communion. Uh, open communion, some churches are closed communion, which means it's only for the church members of that church. We celebrate open communion, which means that if you're a Christian, this is for Christians, okay? If you are a Christian, then you uh, can participate with us. If you believe that Jesus was the Son of God, lived a perfect life, died on the cross, uh, come back on the third day, is now at the right hand of God, and you just don't know that in your head, you've submitted your heart to it, you're all in with it, then you can celebrate this with us if you're a Christian. So Travis, come on out. Travis in the back uh, and our, our band and our choir, they're going to come out. Our ushers are going to come forward in, in a moment. And uh, when our ushers come forward, uh, they're going to pass out two little cups, one on top. One's got a little piece of bread. One's got some juice. We use juice here, by the way, for those of you who may have had an issue in the past and 
don't need to do wine. We, this is juice. That's why we do that, okay? So uh, you're safe, all right? So uh, it's a little cup of Welch's grape juice uh, on, uh, on, on top. Take those, hold them. If you're a believer, hold those. Then I'll come back out and we'll remember this together. Okay, so uh, I'm going to pray. Our ushers will come, start passing that out. Our band is just going to play underneath as they're passing this out. Use this as a time to do what Paul said in Corinthians and examine yourself. Where have I not been obedient? If you're a Christian, where have I not been obedient? God, forgive me. Where have I I lost focus? God, forgive me. Examine yourself, confess. Then we'll come back and remember, take together about how Jesus transforms. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Thank you for your amazing grace and Thank you for the body that was broken and your blood that was shed to transform. And I pray that today we would be transformed. Lord, I pray that that today people would be transformed. I pray that today we who have been transformed, Lord, would be obedient and focused. And God, we would remember who you are and that would set who we are. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name.